All right, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn in it to the book of First Timothy. I'm in chapter 3 there this morning. As you're getting there, let me kind of reiterate something. Um, so in your worship guide, the back page, there's, a, there's a, a, an announcement for something called the Foundations of Gospel Ministry class. That's, um, we had a time correction on that. Uh, let me give you a little context for that. If, if for some reason you did not get, if you're a member or even a regular tender of UPC and you did not get the text this week that um, had a link to it, to our informational meeting from the previous, from last Sunday. Um, We'd love for you to let us know so that we can make sure you get that and you can see what we talked about. One of the things that we did talk about has to do with uh, this class. It was a very brief little snippet. But basically, I'm about to talk and we're about to transition into the section of our Reimagined series where we're talking about reimagining what leadership is in the church. And I want to just kind of throw out there that leadership is, there's, it's something you learn. I know we have this idea, right? You're a natural-born leader, right? We say that. Um, leadership's a skill. It's a skill that we learn. It's a skill that we grow in. And leadership in the church has certain things attached to it that it does need. And so if, if, if you're thinking to yourself, no matter who you are, right? And you're, you're thinking to yourself, like, I... I'd like to learn more about that. I'd like to grow in, in that. I might even aspire one day to, to be in some kind of leadership position in the church. It doesn't mean officer. It, doesn't, it means leadership. Like it means maybe you want to be a group leader. You want to lead a team. or You just, you just want to help lead others. You want to just grow as a Christian. Love to have you as a part of that. Okay? Uh, the information's all there, but we, I, I just wanted to put out a personal invitation because I would love to have you there. So uh, come on out to that. So, like I said, we're, we're kind of shifting. We've talked about mission, and we talked about what the church does over a span of about four weeks, and now we're shifting into leadership and what, what it is, what leaders of this thing called the church are supposed to be like and what they're supposed to do. We're going to spend three weeks on that. And we're going to start where I think is probably the best place to start, which has to do with the kind of people that leaders in the church are. So if you have your place in 1 Timothy 3, would you stand um, in honor of God's word, we read in chapter 3, verses 1 down through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons that they prove themselves blameless. Wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing 
for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your grace and thank you that there's not a person in this room who can hear all of those things just listed off and think, I've nailed it. We need you. We need to grow in you. We need you to form us, to shape us, to make us more like you. And we need your forgiveness when we fail. And so we ask uh, that you would, during this time, let everything that Jesus has done come to the forefront and everything else, including the one who speaks, fall away. Because, Lord, you are the one who has the words of eternal life. So speak. Your servants are listening. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So when I was in seminary, which for those of you who may not be familiar with that term, that's grad school for pastors. Um, when I was in seminary, I met with a local, pa- I, I went to seminary here in Orlando, um, and I, I met with a local pastor for a couple of times whose name will remain anonymous. Um, in one of our few meetings, he had me take a personality test. I'm sure you've done these, right? Answer a bunch of questions, spits out a few letters, some kind of label, and that, that it kind of sums up your way of interacting with the world. I'm not actually opposed to such things. I find them very helpful, um, incredibly helpful uh, for, for many, many, many things. But I bring this up because it was here that this pastor looked at my results and told me that I would never make a good senior pastor, solo pastor, or church planner, but that I could have a pretty good run of being a solid associate pastor. Two meetings. That was how many times we had met. His judgment was based on a particular way that I scored, like how I would normally respond to things, my temperament, more or less. I don't bring this up to say that he was wrong, though. I, I mean, he does, I'm sure he doesn't even remember it. That's the funny thing. I bring this up only to say that when it comes to leadership in the church, we struggle to know what it's about. What are these leaders supposed to be like? What are we supposed to be like if we aspire to that? And our culture is likewise confused, by the way, right? Is a leader the one who can articulate our beliefs the best? One who stands up and can kind of give the platform speech? Does that make a leader? Is a leader the one who takes charge confidently? In the middle of chaos, they kind of step up and go, yes, hey, here's what we're doing. You're doing this, you're doing this. Is that a leader? Maybe a leader is just someone who's really been successful at life. Maybe that's a leader. What makes a leader, and especially one in the church of Jesus? And as we reimagine UPC, one of the things we'll need to imagine is what leaders look like here. And this is not in any way meant as a, like, laying out kind of an indictment on those who are currently leaders. It's saying, what are we expecting? And how will we get there? Right? So it's going to be, we're going to look at this in a couple of ways. Okay, there's an outline as always. We're going to look at what it is, and then we're going to look at how to get it. Real simple. Okay? Let's start with what it is. Look down again at verse 1. He's saying, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he decides or desires a normal task. That, that word overseer is where we get our word episcopal from, right? It, it, it means, um, well, it means overseer, but it's, it's kind of synonymous with elder 
um, even uh, some, some translations will say bishop. New Testament scholars will tell you that all of those are kind of synonymous. Elder, pastor, bishop, all the overseer, they're all kind of synonymous. And, and, and then we see down in verse 8, we're talking about deacons. So specifically, the, this passage is about not just leadership in general, but for specific offices in the church, okay? Okay, so let me be clear that that's what that's talking about, qualifications of two specific offices in the church. Church is led by elders and deacons. If you want to learn more about that, we have the Engage class going on right now. In a few weeks, we'll be talking about that. Come and join us. Uh, But these elders and deacons have different functions, but both their offices are derived from the ministry of Jesus. Now, we're going to define what those, what these, um, these traits, the things that make up these people in a minute, but but what I want to point out first is that the, the, these lists are for elders and deacons. It's not just for them, right? It says something, this passage says something very important to us about what leadership in the church is supposed to be framed by. And there's only two things in, these, in both of these lists that don't fit the rest. One is the qualification of being apt to teach, and the other is holding the faith with a clear conscience. All of the rest of them are not about things that you do. They're about who you are. The rest of them are about character. Now, that word character, we, it, it's not in this passage, but that, we get that term um, from a Greek word that talked about the impression that an engraving tool would make into something. Right? That was a character. And so all of the rest of these are character traits. In other words, what makes an official leader, an officer in the church of Jesus, isn't so much what they can do, nor what they have done, but the kind of person they are. Right? In other words, this is not about behaviors, at least initially. It's not specifically those behaviors you do, because those can be taught, <laughs> It's a way of being that drives behaviors. It's who you are, especially when no one is watching you. That is what your character is. Okay? Now, before I move off of this, let me say this. It is not about never messing up. If that's the case, we should all turn in our resignations right now if you aspire for anything. Just turn it in. Give up. Right? It's about someone for whom those mess-ups, when they happen, seem a little, maybe a little out of place, but more can be rectified rather quickly. Okay? Now, what kind of character are we looking at? Let's look down at those defining traits. So roughly all of these that you see in these two brief lists break up into four categories, okay? Uh, It should have been three because I'm Presbyterian, but I couldn't get it down to any further than four. So it's four. Uh, It it deals with who we are with God, who we are with um, ourselves, who we are with our families, and who we are with outsiders, okay? So let's begin with who we are with God. So the first one there is being above reproach. Some of your translations will say blameless. What that means is that when you look at this person, when you look at them from the outside, you couldn't seem to bring an accusation against them. Again, not that they are spotless, not that there's never, but like overall, their life is characterized. Like, yeah, they're pretty upright. They seem okay. Seem like someone who just 
they're kind of walking this out normally. Now, again, I need to be clear because it says, if, if, you, if you have the, the, uh, the translation blameless, you're like, yeah, brick, but it says blameless. You cannot blame them. I have, need to remind you, this is in the Christian church. And in the Christian church, part of being blameless has to do with how you respond when you do sin. Right? Because in the, if, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're here because you admit that you can't get your life together, right? Like, that's why we're here. We're here because we need someone to rescue us. That someone happens to be Jesus. So being upright means that your, your, your kind of whole life is like, yeah, I can't, I, there's nothing to accuse there. And then you have this idea of being apt to teach or holding to the faith. Those have to do with the Christian faith. Like I said, those are more behaviors than anything else. But it, it, the reason why I've lumped them in here with the concept of being connected with our relationship with God is that it's not just that you need to be able to teach anything. It's not like, well, you know, this guy teaches um, theoretical physics really well. Like it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with whether or not you can teach the faith, <laughs> the Christian faith, the gospel. And holding to the faith means the Christian faith. The gospel, are you holding to it with a clean conscience? And thirdly, it talks about not being a recent convert. Now, that also is not necessarily a character thing, but it does have to do with our relationship with God. This is important. You know, when I was, um, when I first became a Christian, I became a Christian in a college ministry, and in a college ministry, apart from your, your staff who were there, um, the most mature person you know is like three years older in their faith than you are. Um, but, and, and <laughs> that does raise problems, by the way. It does create problems. Um, for some of us, it created a lot of problems. But the important thing here is to understand that there is a level of experience that is needed when we're talking about leading others in an observable way in the church. And here, Paul says the reason is because, listen, you can often fall into what he calls the condemnation of the devil, which is to say pride. And I am one to affirm that happens when you're leading too young, right? So that's how it happens. Those are the things that have to do with our relationship with God. Then you have self. What kind of a character, what kind of character should deal with your your self-governance? Well, the first concept in there is this this phrase, sober-minded. Now, there's two items in these lists that speak to the concept of sobriety in general, okay? This one here is speaking particularly of clear, thoughtful, and non-rash thinking. To have sober judgment means that you're not prone to snap judgments, which is not the same as saying that you take a long time to reach a judgment, right? Being slow to make a decision doesn't mean that you are sober-minded. It may just mean that you're scared to commit to anything. It may just mean that you're afraid of making the wrong decision. Being sober judgment means not making snap judgments, clear, thoughtful not seeming to be kind of driven by, by rash concepts or rash thinking, okay? The second that he talks about is being self-controlled. Did you know that self-control is like the number one thing that Paul seems to tell Christians, especially men, that they need to engage with? There's, there's this whole section, and I think it's in um, Titus, or maybe it's in first, uh, Second Timothy, but I should have written that down. But it's, it, he's, he's giving instructions, and he's no, it's in Titus. And he's telling, he's telling this new pastor, Titus, he's saying, I need you to tell this to the older men, and I need you to tell this to the older women, I need you to tell this to the younger men, I need you to tell this to the younger women, okay? And in the older men's list, he has a list of things, self-controls in them, 
Okay? And then when he gets to the younger men, I'm sure what he's thinking is, listen, they can't handle much. So we just need one thing. Just tell them to be self-controlled. If they can handle that, we're good. Okay? Self-control is the capability of saying no to yourself. It's not something that we are very good at. I will never forget the first time I, told, I was talking to a friend of mine back in Virginia uh, early on in my days planning Holy Cross, and I was talking to him about the concept of fasting. And I will never forget him looking at me and going, dear Lord, why would you ever want to do that? This concept was voluntary self-denial. Voluntary self-denial. Like, I'm choosing to not do X. That's not wrong. I'm just choosing not to do it. Right? And he was like, why? Why would you ever do that? And I'll be honest, at the time I had no clue. Uh, I was like, I I don't know. I struggle with self-control. And so this is where one of the things I do is it's it's the capability of saying no to yourself. It's the ability to not be driven by your desires but to step back, to think about it, to make a judgment. It's rejecting our drives, self-control. Then he talks about this other one, being a drunkard. Or later he says, not addicted to much wine. I love that, not much. Addicted to a little, just not much. It's not, a, it, no, it's, not a, it's not an out clause for you, sorry. Listen, being a drunkard does not mean someone who drinks. It does mean being a drunkard, but I need to be clear. I think in our, in our culture, in our mindset, when we think about someone who, when we hear the word drunkard, we think about someone who is walking around sloppy drunk all the time, don't we? Someone who can't get their lives together, someone who's just a mess. Maybe that's some of us. Maybe it's been some of us. Maybe it's some of us right now. We just cleaned up real nice for the service. But let me be very clear. You can be very functional and still need a substance to deal with life. Right? We, we think drunkard, we associate it as an alcoholic or drug addict, and that is valid, but there's more than that here. If you are, if you are in bondage to a substance to make your life work, like I need that or I can't function, even if that may be more socially acceptable, there might be a problem there to look at, to think through. And he talks about not being violent but gentle. And this is huge, right? With most of this list, if you were to, if you were to talk to a New Testament scholar, one of the things they would tell you is there's a lot of overlap in this list between the cultural norms of like the Greco-Roman society and um, what we're seeing in the church. Paul picks certain ones that would have been, that some of them would have been admired in, uh, in, in the society at large. But this one kind of stands out as weird. See, here's the thing. A lot of folks read this list, especially with the fact that it's speaking of two offices in the church that, that are, with what Paul is saying here and in other places, kind of a, a male-only office and context, and, they, and you will see it as tyrannical, right? The concept of rejecting violence and being gentle though, 
completely argues against what would have been normal in the Greco-Roman world and what's normal now as your typical autocratic leader. This is someone who does not seek to coerce. This is someone who doesn't use, whether it's their physicality or the power of their personality, whether it's their words, they're not seeking to coerce. They're gentle. That doesn't mean they're a powder puff. It just means they're gentle. They're not trying to control people. Which is actually like the exact opposite of what we normally think of autocratic and tyrannical leaders, right? The last one in this list, in this, in this list of self, has to do with greed. Not greedy, not being a lover of money. Like one of the biggest criticisms of like pastors or church leaders in general is that they're only out for my money, right? If we don't think that, we have, or we might be tempted to think it. And look, let me be honest with you. I have never met someone who wouldn't be open to having a little bit more cash, right? Like, I've never met someone who's like, you know what, I just have too much. Here, take it. Just take it. I've got too much. That's not what this is talking about, right? If you can have a little more resources, I'm, I'm sure those people exist. I've just never met them. But what this is talking about is someone for whom money and resources is their first love. It's their God. It's their I'll do anything to get it. I'll lie to you, I'll coerce you, I'll spiritually manipulate you because it's what I want, right? Then his section starts on the family. He talks about husband of one wife. Now, many of you have probably heard this, but this, this literally in the original means one woman man. It, what it doesn't mean is that to be a leader in the church, you have to be married, <laughs> Nor does it necessarily mean, I'll say necessarily, because there, there's, there's some um, complexity in here, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have been divorced to be a leader in Jesus' church, but it means that if you are married, you are committed to your spouse, right? Committed. Well, why? Rick, what does that matter? Well, you know why. You know this. You know exactly why this is. If, if you can't be trusted to be true to your commitments, to the person that you've said is the most important person in my life. If, if those promises are easily broken, how easily are the, bro- are the promises broken to people that you may or may not even have relationship with? Right? How can people trust you if those commitments are that hard? See, the issue is, not, is, is really down to whether or not you keep your promises. A husband of one wife. Secondly, he talks about managing your home well. In the ancient world, that is to say, uh, what that would have mean is creating an environment where others can flourish and aren't eager to revolt. And the point that he's trying to make here, and he actually states it, Paul states it, he's like, look, if, if you're struggling to manage your own home, uh, how are you planning on managing God's? Like, how can you do one or the other? And, and listen, I, I don't say this to shame anyone, but if you are in a form of church leadership right now and you're your home life is a wreck, please step away. Not from your home life. Please step away from church leadership. We'll make do. We'll figure it out. But I have been a part and seen too many church leaders who use their position in the church to avoid their problems at home. The best thing you can do for the church that you love 
is by attending to the first family in your life, okay? And we can help there. There's no shame in it, okay? So managing your own home. And then, then he talks about uh, having kids that are submissive. What does that mean? Uh, <laughs> I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean your ability to control your children. Children are free moral agents. It's one of the most terrifying things about being a parent. They are not robots. I don't care how, many, how much input you put into them, they will do with it what they want to do with it. Okay, so that's not what it's talking about. I will simply say this, and, and listen, I, there could be an entire sermon on every one of these, each one we could do an entire series. We're not, so listen, I know that in many of the things that I've already said in the thing I'm about to say, it may be oversimplified, and you may be thinking, Rick, that's oversimplified, and so I'm here telling you, I may be oversimplifying, okay? But what I, and if, if that's the case and you want to talk more, come talk to me, but we're speaking in broad terms, we need to do this. So I'm going to simply say this. Not every child that rebels is a result of you as a parent, your character. Okay? However, it is an opportunity to take a look at your life, take a look at your marriage, your parenting, and how all of them fall in line with the gospel that you say you believe. Maybe you've done everything awesome, and this is just the way things go. It happens, okay? Or maybe there are some things you need to apologize for, some ways that your life, your parenting, your marriage haven't lined up with the gospel that you believe. Maybe there are some things that you can ask forgiveness for and maybe seek God's mercy for. Maybe. Again, I know that's probably overly simplistic. So we can talk, okay? The last category has to do with outsiders. How, and when I say outsiders, I mean people outside the church. And the first one of those is, is hospitality. That, 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 that a leader needs to be hospitable. And what that means is a willingness to help outsiders feel like family. And a leader needs to be able to do this in Jesus' church, whether an official leader in an office or not, because this, is, this embodies the gospel, right? The gospel, one of the aspects of the gospel is God bringing outsiders into his family, making them part of his family, feeling at home. And so this needs to be part of the gospel. But when we say hospitality, I need to note this does not mean entertaining, okay? They are different things. They sometimes go together. Some people are good at both. The other night we had our um, Discover UPC um, evening. We did that at Jim and Angie Moore's house. Jim and Angie, um, they can put out a spread. And I say that admitting that I think I'm pretty good at this. I can't compete with what they do. But putting out a great spread is different than hospitality. That is not to say they don't do hospitality too. In fact, I think that was one of the hallmarks of the night is the amount of connections that were made between people. And if you were there, you know this. The amount of connections that were made between people because of an environment of people who were outsiders who didn't know each other who suddenly felt like they were insiders, part of a family. It was, it was beautiful. It was awesome. 
Okay? The most incredible part of that night was not the charcuterie, though it was impressive. It was the connections, okay? So what that is to say is that helping someone feel like they belong doesn't take a nice spread. It just takes an attitude. And if you want to be a leader in Christ's church, that's part of it. Secondly, he talks about being respectable. That means that outsiders, even those who don't believe what we believe, wouldn't think that you're a bad guy. Wouldn't think that you're a bad person. Just kind of go, yeah, I, I respect them. I don't believe what they believe, but at least they're not jerks about it, you know? And he talks about being double-tongued. This is the person that talks out of both sides of their mouths. They say one thing around certain people and then change their tune around the others. In other words, it's someone you can't trust. Can't trust them. Like one day they're throwing so-and-so under the bus, and the next day they, that person's their best friend. When so-and-so's not in the room, they just absolutely demolish them. When they are in the room, they're lovey-dovey. Right? A leader in Jesus' church needs to be someone who does what they say and is the same person with everybody. Hmm. Then the last one, quarrelsome. This one really goes between family and outsiders, but I put it here. If I'm being honest with you, in our theological tradition, this is an acceptable character flaw. Especially if you are, quote-unquote, contending for the truth. As a matter of fact, we oftentimes put people into leadership because they are willing to go toe-to-toe with anyone who says anything wrong. We call them prophetic. It is not prophetic. It is quarrelsome. It is not godly. You are quarrelsome if you can't leave a discussion without showing that you were right. If you can't be wrong, can't be seen as wrong, can't leave a loose statement without arguing, can't let someone else have the last word. Can't just let them say it and walk away. If that's you, you are quarrelsome, and I don't care if you're right. Listen, if you're right, if you're right, let me give you the benefit of the doubt. You probably are. You're right. Who cares whether anyone else notices it? If you're right about your theological position, your political position, whatever, if you can't convince someone else, who cares? What does that say about you? Being quarrelsome is not a qualification for leadership. It's actually the opposite. So that's the list, but now let's look at why it matters, okay? That's just defining things. See, here's the crazy thing. What we haven't talked about yet is why Paul is writing this in general. So here's what's going on. This, this early Christian leader named Paul, he planted a bunch of churches in the ancient world. One of them was in this town in, what we, in, in, in an area that um, was kind of in the, in the uh, eastern part of the Mediterranean. And, and it was called Ephesus. And he planted this church. He loved this church. He set up leadership in this church. And then he sent his protege, this guy by the name of Timothy, to go and be a, the pastor at this church. In other words, the, all the structures are already there. 
when Timothy gets there. It's not like Timothy's starting from scratch. Now, Paul writes a letter, another letter to a guy named Titus who's planting a church. He's starting a church. So he's having to teach him how to do this in the front end. But Timothy's already there. So why I'll put all these qualifications in there? This place already has elders, probably already has deacons. What, what's this about? Well, what's going on in Ephesus at the time is that there are all these people who are rising up that Paul would call false teachers, saying crazy things about Jesus. And Paul wants to teach this young pastor what to do about it. Did you find that interesting? Paul's answer to false teaching is not, here's a theological exam to give to your leaders. His answer is not, test them on their ability on how they can lead an organization. Make sure they got some management skills. What he focuses on, first and foremost, is character. Why? See, here's the reality. You and I don't have the option of saying, I will uh, be led by no one. Not only do we not live in that universe, but you and I weren't made for that. We weren't made for that. The scriptures are pretty clear that we are made for being led and for leading others, whether we're talking about our kids, our friend group, our workplace, or the church. The question is not whether we will be led by others. The question is what kind of person is supposed to be leading. The question is not whether we will lead. The question is what kind of person do I need to become to lead? See, the problem in Paul's time as in ours is that people want leadership for them. Some of us in this room, we got into leadership for us, didn't we? Like, if we're being honest, look, it's okay. Like, we're all on the same team here. Like, a lot of us did. Like, we, we got into this, and listen, there's no such thing as a pure motive, okay? A lot of us got into this, and the motives were a little more on the me side than it was on the you side. See, false teachers, they wanted leadership for financial gains, for respect, the praise, the adulation. In other words, they wanted the status it would bring. And this is why Paul harps on character. Because if a leader is leading to get something from you, they, can never be, they, can, they will never be able to lead for you. It will always be for them. And the same is true if you want to lead. Listen to me. If you want a position, and I don't care what that position is, the position that Paul's talking about here is a noble thing, right? He says, if anyone aspires to this, they aspire, they want something good. But if you're looking to get that position for respect, for power, for authority, for praise, to finally prove that you've arrived, to finally prove that your decision was the right one, that you're somebody, if that's why you're in this, let me ask you a question. What happens when you make the wrong decision? What happens when it becomes clear that you're not as smart as the people next to you? What happens, what happens when you just mess it up? I'll tell you what happens. You become quarrelsome or double-tongued, maybe even violent, because you have to protect your status. So why does good character matter? Not because it guarantees flawless decisions. 
<laughs> nope. <laughs> no, it does not guarantee flawless decisions. It doesn't guarantee perfect execution. I can promise you that. There's no such thing. It matters because it says something about what is going on in the life of that person. It tends to mean, tends to mean that they are leading out of a position of fullness, not out of a position of need. Right? They can reflect these traits because they aren't trying to get a status from you. Not trying to be secure in your admiration or to be satisfied in whatever pleasures they can have access to. Because they've gotten those things somewhere else. So how do we get there? Because that sounds great. Sounds great, but if we're a leader, how do we not need those things from others? If you're already a leader, how do you not need those things from others? And if you're not a leader yet, if you're becoming a leader, how do we not just try and suck the life out of people? Shouldn't come as a shock, but I'm going to tell you, it all comes back to Jesus. Here's the deal. The reason why you and I seem so dead set on seeking after status, after safety, after satisfaction is because we were made for those things. It's not that those are weird. Those were natural. That's what we're made for. It isn't that we just kind of go, stop it. I don't, I have, I need no status. No, you do. You're made for one. That's why you want it. You will always seek these things because you were made for them. The issue is not whether or not you seek them. The issue is where you were meant to find them. And the Bible teaches us that we were meant to find that status, that safety, and that satisfaction in Jesus and in him alone. See, we were made in God's image to exercise his just and loving rule over the earth in an unbroken relationship with him. It's quite the status. We were made for life, not death. Joy, not pain. It's quite safe. And we were made to find our rest in him instead of the restlessness that we experience. We were made for the satisfaction that only God gives us. The problem is that we betrayed him. And when we betrayed him, we became separated from him. And now we find these things and we we are convinced that we have to find these things on our own apart from him. We need people to think we're right, so we become quarrelsome. We need to have control of our lives to make us safe so that we become violent and coercive. We need relief from the restlessness that we experience so we get hooked on beer or pills or porn. But it's never enough. And it never can be. Because we were made for so much more. Jesus came to restore us to God, to live perfectly, to die sacrificially, and to rise victoriously so that we can be reconciled to God through faith in him. And when we do, we get a new status, a better one. We are now child of God. Behold what love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, John says. And then he stops and he pauses. He says, and we are. This is what we are. Beloved and honored. We place our faith in him and we we get a better safety because sin and death and hell are conquered. We place our faith in him. We get a better satisfaction because our, our restless hearts can finally find their rest in the one that we were made for in him. Do you see it? Like the gospel frees you to embody this kind of character and to lead others out of fullness instead of out of our neediness. And listen, listen, listen. I can tell you 
that every time I have blown it, not made mistakes, I make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. That's not what I'm, I'm talking about blown it as a leader. Some of you have been present when I've done it. And I've only been here 10 months. Every time I've blown it as a leader, and every time I will in the future, it is because I am not, first and foremost, resting in the finished work of Jesus. Okay, so how do we grow in that? Because <laughs> we all need to. Whether you think of yourself as a leader yet or not, whether you think of yourself as, as this is what I want in life or not. And listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and not everybody in this room is, I'm pretty sure that when I was reading that list, you weren't going, yeah, no. No, I don't want any part about that. Like me, I'm, I'm all about being jacked up. I'm all about having a jacked up family life, lying to people all the time and raging at whoever disagrees with me. I'm all about that. I'm pretty sure that's not where you're at. Like, I'm, you're, you're probably even thinking, you know what, those, if those, that kind of character was reflected in my life, I, yeah, I'd be okay with that. So how do we grow? There's tons that we could say about this. But first and foremost, I'm, I'm just going to go through four different things, Okay. First and foremost, we need to understand that what we're talking about is more than just behavior. Character is something that drives behavior. We act out of our character, right? Now, it also results in behavior, which means that character isn't less than behavior, but it is more, okay? So let's say that you struggle with being quarrelsome. I'm sure none of you do. I'm talking to someone, a theoretical person in the room. So let's just talk to that theoretical person. Theoretical Bob, we'll call him Bob, okay? your name's Bob, I'm not talking about you, okay? Theoretical Bob. Struggles with being quarrelsome. It just has to be right. Or at least understood. To be thought of as the smartest dude in the room. How do you see change in that? Okay, so let's go through that. How do you do that, first and foremost? Why do you feel that way? Why do you think that? What are you getting from being right? Is it admiration? Is it power? Is it glory? Is it some sense of like, I'll know that I matter if other people look to me for things? See, here's the thing. None of those are bad things. There's nothing wrong with admiration. There's nothing inherently wrong with power, frankly, and there's certainly nothing wrong with glory. You're just getting them from the wrong place. First and foremost, you need to go to Jesus, repent of trying to find these things independently from him, and ask him to change that about you. So how do I change? First and foremost is to look at why it is that we're doing this thing and to repent of it and go back to Jesus and ask him to change us. Second, we need to attend to the ways in which God says, here's how you will change. In our tradition, in the theological tradition this church is part of, we call those the means of grace. Okay? The means of grace. If you just stink at self-control, which is my struggle, by the way, then just make sure that you're spending time in prayer, fasting, doing private worship, you know, at home, your Bible, corporate worship here, the sacraments, always seeking the Spirit's work. Like, you're not going to change apart from that. You're just not. It's not the only thing you need, but it, you can't change without it. Okay? Third, community is key. What I mean by that is like, not only sharing where you need change with others, but asking them to speak into that in your life. If you see me being quarrelsome, can you, can you let me know? Hey, Rick, I think you, 
do you, do you really need to be right here? Is it really that important to be right? No, right? Let the church help you grow. But lastly, and I put this last because I want, I want us to remember it as we leave because I think it's the most important. The last step in growing character is compassion. And I mean on you. Here's what I mean. If you're anything like me, when you aren't making progress in your life that you want to see, shame is right there to tell you about it. For me, it happens as soon as I wake up. I wake up in the morning. I look at the clock. It's always 5.30. Why is it always 5.30? But it's always 5.30. And the first thing that hits me is where I've failed. And then we project our own disappointment onto others thinking that they're thinking the same thing we're thinking or we project it onto God he's thinking the exact same thing I'm thinking so listen to me character does not change overnight and it doesn't change easily but Jesus lived for you and he died for you to reconcile you to God you are a mess And so am I. And Jesus knew that when he purchased you with his blood. Jesus was sovereign over reconciling you to God and he is sovereign over your change. And so every little change is a celebration. Seek it. Seek it, please. By all means, I want us all to be seeking. I'm doing it, I want you to be doing it. Seek that change in your character, but seek it in the freedom of knowing that you did nothing to get the smile of God. Which means that you can't do anything to lose it. You're not going to lose it because you're not growing fast enough. You're not going to lose it when you mess up. You return to Jesus. Because it's through the gospel that you have everything that you're actually looking for. Would you pray with me? Lord, free us. Free us to live like you. You didn't just deliver us from the penalty of sin, but you also delivered us from its power. And so I ask that you would change us. For those of us in this room right now who are already in these leadership positions, I pray that you would form us more and more into the image of Christ. Into the places where our character does not line up. And there are those places we don't have to pretend. Those places that we're not, we know we, we need work. Would you, would you free us to see that change? And for those of us who are just starting this, this journey and want to become this, would you form us into the kind of men and women shaped into the image of Jesus, living out of that character to see others flourish? We ask you to do all this in Christ's name. Amen.